Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for March 10th. It's a Friday. And in a variation on a famous Carl Sandburg quote, Ted Cruz once said, if you have the law on your side, bang on the law. If you have the facts on your side, bang on the facts. But if you have neither, bang on the table. Now, Sandberg is attributed with saying pound on the table and yell like hell. And in a moment like this, we are witnessing a Democrat party that has neither the facts nor the law on their side. And what are they doing but banging on the table and yelling like hell? They're attempting to discredit the messengers. Some of you may have seen our Monday show where we talked about if you are catching flack, then you're over the target. And one of the messages that we took home from Stephen Friend and from George Hill was that there was no refuting the message that they brought when they were testifying in front of Congress. There was only an attempt to discredit them as messengers. Uh, in today's show, we're going to be discussing some of those important moments that came from the House Weaponization Committee testimony with Michael Schellenberg and Matt Taibbi. That happened yesterday. And after that, we're going to talk about a little bit of the stonewalling and the uh, general malfeasance that continues to go on at the FBI because they just can't help it. They're back in the news. Uh, we'll talk about a thread that Julie Kelly put out, which I think is very telling. And I want to also discuss the way that CNN covers it because... Of course, the story that they lead with is not the story that is of note to anybody that is involved in uh, in the trials here and the uh, the things that go on for the January 6th defendants, including the Proud Boys, for their so-called uh, seditious conspiracy. All right. So I want to get into the Matt Taibbi and Schellenberg testimony that went on yesterday. For those of you that are not aware, the House Committee on the Judiciary has convened a subcommittee or a select committee on the weaponization of the federal government. And what they decided to do in their second public hearing is discuss the Twitter files. If you're not following the Twitter files, you can find them on f at least four different journalists threads. They are all being threaded by independent journalists, including Lee Fang, Barry Weiss, who the uh, members of this committee did not know is a female, but Barry Weiss is a female writer who historically has been at the New York Times. Um, there's a man named Michael Schellenberg, who is going to be pictured in some of this testimony that we'll show a couple of uh, little scenes from, and Matt Taibbi, who worked for a long time at Rolling Stone. Now, I'm going to focus on Matt Taibbi uh, in many ways because he was the first person to begin with the Twitter files threads. I have a, uh, a small connection to him in that we've spoken a number of times for a number of hours and I find Matt Taibbi to be utterly credible and utterly reasonable in the way that he approaches these things. What I don't find is that the ranking member, Stacey Plaskett, of this House Subcommittee on Weaponization is bringing anything to light and has any interest in achieving anything close to the truth. So we're going to, uh, we're going to kind of dip into how she did her opening statement. I want you to hear what she said and... Then we're going to hear the address that Matt Taibbi came back with. Now, I, I receive his substack. One of the uh, weird things about him interviewing me is that we were going to be doing a story, and so he gave me an access to his substack. So I get emails of that uh, nearly every morning, sometimes a couple times a day, 
for this online magazine, which is called Racket. And um, I'm going to read what he originally wrote as well. We'll play just his, uh, his opening statement because he does have a nice little rebuttal to this woman. But let's go ahead and cut into looking at the ranking member this is Stacy Plaskett, the representative from the United States Virgin Islands, and I'll tell you why that's also relevant in a second here. So let's hear what she has to say. Hi, opening statements. Three weeks ago, House Oversight had this hearing with actual Twitter executives who had actual firsthand knowledge about what happened in 2020. And that didn't go so well for the House Republicans because real evidence showed that there wasn't coordination between Twitter and the federal government. So real evidence. I'm not confident that any of them brought any evidence beyond people speaking. And uh, that's testimony, but it's not evidence. And so once again, this woman, this is not a serious person. She's going to get fake outraged here in a moment. It's kind of interesting to watch. Whenever somebody is doing this, just think about them bounding on the table because she doesn't have facts. She doesn't even know what words mean. But unfortunately for her, uh, she's going to do this in public, and it's most likely that some staffer wrote this because you can tell she doesn't actually know what she's talking about a little bit later on as well. As they like the American people to believe, and that all the so-called Twitter files really showed was a discussion on content moderation, and that we only got a fraction of the discussion. Why is she mad? So now we're back again, no surprise. What else have they got to talk about? Not what's interested in the American people are interested, not what taxpayer dollars have brought us here to Washington to do. And the Republicans have brought in two of Elon Musk's public scribes. That's an embarrassing statement for her. So these are Elon Musk's public scribes. Um, Forbes covered this as her slamming them. I suppose that's a case. I would say that she publicly discredits herself. She's talking to two of the more accomplished independent journalists in this country and two people who are breaking what is probably the most important story of the last 10 years, as noted by the public engagements. And, and we'll let Matt have his own rebuttal to that, but uh, I'm gonna let her continue for a few moments. To release cherry-picked out-of-context emails and screenshots designed to promote his chosen narrative, Elon Musk's chosen narrative that is now being parroted by the Republicans, because the Republicans think that these witnesses will tell a story that's going to help them out politically. On Tuesday, the majority released an 18-page report claiming to show that the FTC is, quote, harassing Twitter, oh my, poor Twitter, including by seeking information about its interactions with individuals before us today. How did the report reach this conclusion? By showing two, one, two single paragraphs from a single demand letter, even though the report itself makes clear that there were numerous demand letters with numerous requests, none of which we've been able to see, that are more demand letters and more requests of Twitter. But she got a little lost in there as she's talking about things that she doesn't understand because she doesn't really know what it is that she's referring to. Jim Jordan made it clear later on that day that not only did the Republicans make it available to her, but they didn't take advantage of that that offer. Uh, she claims that it was because it was late at night. It wasn't that late. 
And um, I don't know, if you were gonna be going in front of an open hearing in front of people, you knew you're gonna be on camera, then maybe you would wanna be educated about the thing that you're talking about. But that's not necessary in this case. It's not necessary for this woman to to have any background on what she's saying. So she just does this uh, this routine where she's gonna have this fake outrage. She's gonna be making fun of Twitter, poor Twitter. I mean, this is an American company. It's an American company where Americans work. It's owned by an American citizen. And she, in theory, is accountable to the American citizens. Uh, we'll discuss why that's even funnier about her. Again, she's the, the representative from the Virgin Islands, which might surprise you to know that there is, in fact, a delegate from there. In other words, the conclusions are based on a fraction of information out of context, cherry-picked, surprise, just like the Twitter files. All right, but that's all I can really tolerate from her. And the thing about it is, is these words cherry-picked, it's of note that they also appear in the Democrat response to Steve Friend, to Gerda Woyle, to George Hill. This is uh, what happens when the same people write the responses in, on these committees. So we're dealing with people that, uh, that are not particularly inventive, they're not creative, and they don't have a different line on any of this, they're going to continue to say the same things, and it's probably the same person who's writing her speech. If you're watching the Rumble video here, what you'll notice is that uh, Stacey Plaskett continues to look down and reads directly off the speech. These are not heartfelt words that are her outrage. This is her performing. She's giving a performance. It's a theatrical performance. It's not a particularly uh, compelling one, at least not to me. Uh, because it comes off as being very scripted, which it is. It literally comes directly out of a script that she's got in front of her. And that script involves her making little faces and, and being diminutive about an American company that is doing something that I think nobody else is doing in this social media space, which is trying to move towards a more free speech platform, which I think is an admirable goal. I was not on Twitter in the uh, the pre-Elon Musk days, at least not for very long. I was I got on Twitter in October of uh, 2022. So I've only really experienced the sort of the Elon Musk takeover and whatever that involves. And it's been mostly free. And I think that it's been mostly something that I've been able to uh, promote whatever ideas that I chose. And those ideas continue to result in more and more people following the account that I created. And, um, and I would say that that's how the marketplace of ideas is supposed to work, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these people want that. So it's uh, it's of note. I'm gonna give Matt Taibbi a chance to say his response to this. And uh, I may play more of this than than not, but w one way or another, I will read through his actual statement because I think it's I think it's important because all of it is from a man who is significantly smarter than Stacey Plaskett by leaps and bounds. And he wrote his own script and he doesn't have any fake outrage. He doesn't have to pretend that it means something that it doesn't. There are words that he wrote down. He's got this, if you're not looking at the uh, the video that I've got in front of me here, he's got like a little uh, teal, you know, iMac or, or um, what do you call those things? iPod, that's not what they're called, iPad. <laughs> I know it's an Apple product. He's sitting here with a little uh, propped up, you know, screen and he's gonna read it because uh, he probably typed it out and that's his format. So here he is. Sitting in a uh, suit, most most of you who are familiar with seeing Matt Taibbi will see him in a ball cap. He's a, he's kind of a low key dude. Um, you know, I've seen him in puffy jackets. His uh, you know his uh, text messages come in, and you know it, he and I will infrequently text, but uh, occasionally I'll I'll reach out to him. 
and it just shows up in a very low key setting and he's got all of his awards and stuff like that behind him whenever he does like a Skype hit or something like that. So this is kind of an interesting look. He's wearing a, you know, a pink shirt and a, a kind of a darker color tie with a dark suit and he looks very professional. And if you don't know anything about Matt Taibbi, he was an athlete in his younger days. He went and played professional basketball over in Russia and I think in Mongolia as well. And uh, he, I mean, he's a physical dude in uh, the same way that when you see him sit and talk to someone like Joe Rogan, which he did recently, these are two physical characters. And then you have this woman out there doing this performance. So without any further ado, um, I'm, this is actually attributed off Dinesh D'Souza's uh, YouTube page here. And uh, we're going to hear Matt in his own words. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, members of the Select Committee, thank you for having me today. My name is Matt Taibbi. I've been a reporter for 30 years uh, and a staunch advocate of the First Amendment. Much of that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, Ranking Member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> so that's, that's Jim Jordan laughing in the background there, which is pretty fantastic. Um, I didn't play all the way through the cut, but she refers to these guys, both Schellenberg and uh, Taibbi, as a so-called journalist or as so-called journalists, which is uh, pretty offensive. This is her, once again, they're attempting to discredit the messenger because this is pound on the table. There's no reason for you to do that and try to like demean a witness that you've never even spoken to. And I'm gonna tell you why these these hearings are gonna end up failing on both sides in a second here, but we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll let Jim Jordan's laugh continue and, and Matt's words. Uh, I'm now the editor of the online magazine Racket on the independent platform Substack. I'm here today because of a series of events that began late last year when I received a note from a source online. It read, are you interested in doing a deep dive into what censorship and manipulation was going on at Twitter? A week later, the first of what became known as the Twitter Files reports came out. To say these attracted intense public interest would be an understatement. My computer looked like a Vegas slot machine uh, as the, just the first tweet about the blockage of the Hunter Biden laptop story registered 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. I just want people to understand what that is. If you're not a social media person, 143 million views. And he said 30 million engagements. When I send out something right now, I have something like 60,000 or 65,000 followers, something in that range on Twitter. You know, I'll catch anywhere between five and 10,000 views on a regular tweet that uh, people are not interested in. On a big one, maybe 100, 150,000, something to that effect. That's if people start picking it up and moving it around. I think the biggest one we've had had six or 700,000 views. One, This one had 143 million views. There's so much interest in what was going on there. And 30 million engagements means people that retweeted it, that, that shared the same subject that they had already seen, people that had commented on it, of which there was a, just an incredible volume of people commenting on it. Everybody wanted to put their take on it. And uh, and I was watching these things come down. I actually was involved in some panel discussions on the original drops like this because people lost their minds about this sort of transparency. And it is a big deal, and it was a big deal at the time. And the number of engagements there are some pretty breathtaking numbers for the platform Twitter. It wasn't until a week after the first report after Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and other researchers joined the search of the files that we started to grasp the significance of this story. The original promise of the internet was that it might democratize the exchange of information globally. A free internet would overwhelm all attempts to control information flow, its very existence a threat to anti-democratic forms of government everywhere. What we found in the files was a sweeping effort to reverse that promise and use machine learning and other tools to turn the internet into an instrument of censorship and social control. 
Unfortunately, our own government appears to be playing a lead role. We saw the first hints and communications between Twitter executives before the 2020 election, when we read things like flag by DHS, or please see attached report from FBI for potential misinformation. This would be attached to an Excel spreadsheet with a long list of names whose accounts were often suspended shortly after. Again, Ranking Member Plaskett, I would note that the evidence of Twitter government relationship includes lists of tens of thousands of names on both the left and right. The people affected include Trump supporters, but also left-leaning sites like Consortium and Truthout, the leftist South American channel Telesur, the Yellow Vest movement. That, in fact, is a key point of the Twitter files, that it's neither a left nor right issue. So I think that's really an important point that Matt makes right there. This is uh, not supposed to be a left or a right issue, and it's something that he continues to accurately state as he moves through his uh, testimony through the entire day. This testimony went on for hours. Um, I live streamed with Chase, Tracy Beans for some of it, so I'll, I'll encourage you to check out the uh, the Uncovered DC Rumble channel if you want to see that. Um, it was mostly us kind of pausing and, and talking or speaking over the top of these clowns because some of them were just saying things that were so patently absurd. We were watching in real time the, uh, the failure to understand what it was that they were even talking about. Most of these Congress people, it seems like, have a weak grasp of the internet, which is kind of incredible, incredible uh, in this day and age. What uh, what Taibi is, is, is talking about when he says that this neither a left or a right issue is something I want to hone in on because they're banging on the messenger here, but the messenger is not a partisan messenger. You know, Taibi is a Democrat, which uh, Jim Jordan revealed later on. He asked them both and they both said they were registered as Democrats. He's, he's an old school liberal. Uh, he describes himself in this speech as an old school ACLU style liberal. In other words, he's one of those people that believes that even if he doesn't agree with you, that you have the right to speak. And, uh, and I feel the same way. Um, we don't have the same beliefs about some things. I know that his uh, issues with religions are his issues. Um, but I, I, I know Matt Taibbi wouldn't have a problem with me having religion. Uh, he wouldn't have a problem with you having religion. And I think it's really important that there used to be that common ground. Matt is one of those guys that I think probably stood still. And he's written about the Russiagate collusion hoax and how nonsensical it was because the facts weren't there. He's a guy that follows the facts. Now, there's always a sense of editorial bias when you deal with uh, writers, when you deal with reporters. And as someone who grew up around newsrooms, literally my whole life, my my uh, my father was the, the uh, news director for a West Coast news station for CBS radio, KCBS 740 AM. Uh, he ran that the year that I was born and spent, you know, a lot of time around the news when I was uh, in my early teens, or at least in my, um, I don't know, whatever it is, middle, middle school ages. Uh, he ran a radio station in, in Dallas, Texas, which was called KRLD. It was the largest news signal in the state of Texas. It was the flagship, of the Texas state networks. And when you, when you are around news people, there's always a bias to say otherwise is absurd. And the bias is usually supposed to be in a real traditional setting. Bias should be based on what stories are chosen, not based on how they cover the story necessarily. Now, they might pick an angle a little bit differently than others, but the, the facts of the story are supposed to be the facts of the story. And my experience with Matt Taibbi has been that that's what he's interested in. He's interested in the facts. The facts go wherever they go. And the fact that he's interested in the story, that's the end of it. That's the amount of uh, editing that he's going to be doing for the editorial end of it. And the rest of it is just how do you put that information out in a way that uh, you can understand. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a little bit further in a, in a second here, but I'll give him a moment just to do it. The left and the right issue is so important. It's something that has been uh, stated in the disclosures given by 
by me, by uh, several other whistleblowers that I'm aware of, by Steve Friend, by George Hill, by Gerardo Boyle. We've actually written these things down to Congress. This is not a left or right issue. The idea that there is a weaponized DOJ or a weaponized FBI, that there is a Twitter that's out there that is uh, you know, censoring people based on their political beliefs, these are not left or right issues because that could swing back on anyone. And a thinking person easily notes that censorship for one can result in censorship for all. It's just a, a quick question of what's in vogue and whether the regime changes. So an incredibly dangerous set of uh, policies to be playing around with. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, the Democrats in this committee can't hear it. They can't hear it at all because they're too busy. They're too busy whatever you, what would you even call that? Like they're too busy being preoccupied with attacking this messenger as opposed to being able to accept that the messenger may have some valid information and points to share. I'll let Matt say some more of his own words. Following the trail of communications between Twitter and the federal government across tens of thousands of emails led to a series of revelations. Mr. Chairman, we summarized and submitted them to the committee in the form of a new Twitter file thread, which was also released to the public this morning. We learned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government, from the FBI, the DHS, the HHS, DOD, the Global Engagement Center at State, even the CIA. For every government agency scanning Twitter, there were perhaps 20 quasi-private entities doing the same thing, including Stanford's Election Integrity Partnership, NewsGuard, the Global Disinformation Index, and many others, many taxpayer-funded. A focus of this fast-growing network, as Mike noted, is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations, or sympathies are deemed misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. That last term is just a euphemism for true but inconvenient. Undeniably, the making of such lists is a form of digital McCarthyism. Ordinary Americans are not just being reported to Twitter for deamplification or deplatforming, but to firms like PayPal, digital advertisers like Xander, and crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe. These companies can and do refuse service law-abiding people and, and businesses whose only crime is falling afoul of a distant, faceless, unaccountable, algorithmic judge. All right. So Matt's discussion here, and I was following along with the, uh, with the actual text that he had sent off to his uh, Substack subscribers. There's a couple of little interesting points in there. Number one, he said he made this available in a Twitter thread and then also gave it to the members of the House. There is a woman who later on in the testimony starts asking questions and it is immediately evidence. Number one, she refers to Barry Weiss as Mr. Weiss. That's kind of funny. If anybody follows anything, Barry spelled B-A-R-I. And uh, Barry Weiss is a female. I believe she's a lesbian. <laughs> I think that's what my wife was telling me. And she's a reporter for the New York Times. She's been around for a long time. She's been a very reputable writer, at least uh, on the left. She's been kind of a darling of the left and she's been one of the more serious people in many ways that wrote for the New York Times. She was involved in this project because they basically got almost all left-leaning, credible journalists who did a story that turned out to write about how Twitter, in this case, was um, censoring people on the right. So all these left-leaning journalists are out there writing about how the left was censoring people on the right. It's really important how to note like these people were not seeking favor from a group and saying like oh i'm about to change teams here that's not what was going on that they went where the story was because they're honest operators in that way i think that's the case uh it's also worth noting that matt talks about how 
there are real world you know situations that are far outside of what what goes on with social media and in some ways i think social media is one of those it's a silly uh canary in the coal mine uh i think those are words he used later on in the in this testimony it it's just a small indicator of how people are being canceled out of society uh now producer phil who's not with me today but uh producer phil always talks about not being suspended from the FBI, not being fired from the FBI, but being canceled from the FBI in the same way that Matt Taibbi is talking about these de-amplifications or de-platformings. And then those can have real world consequences in bigger, bigger um, venues and forums. Those things can include things like PayPal, as he mentioned, digital advertisers. So what is that? That's that's people that are actually going to be placing advertisements on content. So you could actually lose access to uh, potential income. Uh, crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe, many of you will always know that. Uh, there's a reason why the fundraising site that uh, most conservatives are using now is Give, Send, Go. It doesn't have the broader reach. It doesn't have the ability for people to uh, to pop in and find your your campaign on accident. Certainly the much smaller audience when it comes to the, the number of people that are regularly looking at that that platform because GoFundMe set itself up and, and it really dominated the marketplace. When people will ask you, do you have a GoFundMe? It's like, well, no, we have a give, send, go. And some will know what that is. And other people will, you know, wonder why this is a, um, an alternative and, and why does that have to happen? It has to happen because as Taibi accurately notes, these distant, faceless, unaccountable algorithmic judges, his words, but I think, uh, excellently phrased these algorithmic judges and sometimes with human moderation on top of it will eliminate you from that conversation. You're not going to be privy to the, uh, you know, to the human engagements that exist in that, those forums because they've deemed you that you're inappropriate. Um, I actually, I'm going to go back to him for one more moment because I do want him to describe what he thinks was the real problem here. And he does kind of wrap it up. So let me, let me uh, send it back over here to Matt and then we'll, we'll discuss further. As someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal, this mechanism for punishment and deprivation without due process is horrifying. Another troubling aspect is the role of the press, which should be the people's last line of defense in such cases. But instead of investigating these groups, journalists partnered with them. If Twitter declined to remove an account right away, government agencies and NGOs would call reporters for the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets, who in turn would call Twitter, demanding to know why action had not yet been taken. That, that mechanism of enforcement is very, very interesting. And it's something that uh, they were noting. So in the Twitter files, they would note that not only did you know something happen, there'd be a uh, an inbound request from the government. From the government. I mean, <laughs> that should be shocking to people. The government would request censorship, the removal of an account, and then they would leak it to sympathetic NGOs and uh, reporters and uh, you know different outlets on the news that were all on the left. New York Times, Washington Post, as he mentioned, and those agencies, those news organizations or whatever they are now, advocacy groups, would call in or email in and demand the censorship that was already requested by the government. So, uh, you know, there's a great meme and it shows, you know, old school journalists, which is essentially like there's a, a government mouthpiece. The government mouthpiece is like squawking something. And uh, there's a bunch of people behind the journalist and the journalist is basically like squawking back and pushing back on the government narrative. And then it says, you know, today's mainstream media, and it's the government squawking at a podium, the people are all behind, and the journalist has basically turned and is squawking the same direction and message. 
you know, now the press takes its marching orders from the government. This is a, one of those those great examples. But uh, unfortunately, it it neuters the fourth estate, which is the you know what journalists are supposed to be. Historically, the American sentiment is that the press is what keeps the government in check. It's a group of people that uh, that will not just listen and then regurgitate, but will listen, digest, and then push back where is necessary. And, uh, and, and growing up around newsrooms, as I said, this was the kind of people that I was used to seeing. They were all kind of countercultural types. A lot of them were real quirky and weird individuals. They had weird backgrounds and life stories. They had uh, unusual tastes. They had um, you know strange decorations in their homes. They were almost like artists in some ways. Like they were part of a community of people that were nonconformists. And, um, you know, in the in the classic sort of throw sense, uh, you know, who should be a man is a nonconformist. I know I butchered that one, but essentially, you know, they wanted to be people who stood on their own two feet, who had their own ideas and who would push back against whatever that narrative was. That was what it meant to be to be someone who stuck it to the man was a journalist who, you know, what's the deeper story here? And what we're seeing now are mouthpieces of a regime that most most every corporate media and this is why I'm friends with people like Tracy Beans, who's willing to just publish the things that are true and honest and and that they have the receipts for, um, which is kind of a frustrating, you know, um, re recent uh, <laughs> construction for this, the receipts that you, you can show that something was bought. But essentially being able to to bring the documents, to bring the evidence, which is the actual word we're looking for in this case, you know, to have evidence and then let the evidence lead you where it is. That's what a real investigator does. That's how journalists used to work. Um, that's what I thought I was joining in the FBI for what it's worth. Give Matt just another couple seconds here. Effectively, news media became an arm of a state-sponsored thought policing system. I'm running out of time, so I'll just sum up and say, um, it's just not possible to instantly arrive at truth. It is, it is however, possible becoming uh, technologically uh, possible to instantly define and enforce a political consensus online, which I believe is what we're looking at. This is a grave threat to people of all political persuasions. Uh, the First Amendment and an American population accustomed to the right to speak is the best defense left against the censorship industrial complex. If the latter can knock over our first and most important constitutional guarantee, these groups will have no serious opponent left anywhere. If there's anything the Twitter files show, it's that we're in danger of losing this most precious right without which all democratic rights are impossible. Thank you for the opportunity to appear, and I'd be happy to answer any questions from the committee. All right. so. You know, he, he left out some things that he had sent over uh, via email. And so I'm going to read some of those because I think they're also really important. Um, you can tell that Matt is not faking anything. He doesn't have, uh, he doesn't, he's not a, an actor. You can, uh, his delivery is not as good as, as it could be. He's not uh, someone who is doing a performance. You can tell he's probably like a nervous writer who is less comfortable appearing uh, behind a microphone than than most of these Congress people who are used to doing theater in that sort of forum. So some of the things he said um, that I think are th that were left out, he ran out of time and he skipped over these, but let's let's cover what it is. He said, some will say, so what? Why should we eliminate disinformation? To begin with, you can't have a state-sponsored system targeting disinformation without striking at the essence of the right to free speech. These two ideas are in direct conflict. Such an important concept that you cannot censor out. And there's a reason why our free speech is includes mis, dis, or even mal information, as they have stated. Um, 
which he had mentioned is just a euphemism for unpopular ideas. Uh, it says many of the fears driving what what uh, Michael Schellenberg calls the censorship industrial complex, what I've called the um, information industrial complex, also inspired the famous Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. The latter outlawed any false, scandalous, and malicious writings against Congress or the president. Now, we don't believe that these things make any sense right now, but if you don't know about the Alien and Sedition Laws, uh, going back to the end of the, what is that, 19th century, then uh, then look into it. American history, I think, is not well taught and or it's not well received by people in this country. So understand that these were these were salacious laws that were written and they were pretty egregious compared to our belief that uh, we should have free speech. And of course, the idea that you couldn't write anything false, slanderous or malicious, even if it was true, is not something that we're accustomed to at this point. Um, Continuing to quote Taibbi here, here's something that will sound familiar. Supporters of the law hundreds of years ago were quick to denounce their critics as sympathizers with a hostile foreign power, at that time, France. So you just substitute in Russia, and that's where we're getting these Russia, Russia hoax. Once again, if you do not have the facts on your side, you simply try to beat the messenger. And one of the ways you do it is slander them and libel them by mentioning some sort of evil boogeyman. And for the left, Russia is the boogeyman. And that's what they continue to do. Alexander Hamilton said Thomas Jefferson and his supporters were more Frenchmen than Americans. Uh, this was the ongoing debate that was happening at the time. Jefferson, in vehement opposition to the laws, said democracy cannot survive in a country where power is given to people whose suspicions may be the evidence. That is, Jefferson was, was one of those wonderful minds that uh, continues to give gifts to us. Um, whose suspicions may be the evidence. Such a, such a, uh, a tight statement of, uh, of indictment there in this case. And uh, interestingly enough, we're gonna hear from Jerry Connolly in just a second here. Jerry Connolly uh, doesn't apparently understand a lot of things. Um, he doesn't even know how to pronounce these names. And then his colleague was a guy named Goldman. I can't remember what Goldman's first name is, but he comes out of, um, comes out of New York and he's asking Taibbi if he believed in the indictments that came out of the Mueller investigations. And Taibbi rightly says something to the effect of, um, you know, they're just indictments. They're just allocations with uh, with probable cause behind them, but they're not proven. And he said, so you don't believe the indictments. And it's like, you don't know what the word indictment means in our legal process. These are people that are not serious and uh, they, they can't be taken seriously because of it. So uh, anyway, so uh, we're going to move through Jefferson's ideas to still ring true today. This is again, Taibbi speaking in a free society. We don't mandate truth. We arrive at it through discussion and debate. This is that old school liberal piece. And this is why I like him. Uh, once again, we don't have to agree on the starting point. We may end up at the same place if we both are open to sharing ideas, which uh, when he and I have spoken, we have been. Any groups that claim to have, that claim the confidence to decide fact and fiction, especially in the name of protecting democracy, is always itself the threat to democracy. This is why anti-disinformation campaigns don't work. He mentions his experience as a journalist and knows that the experts are often initially wrong and sometimes they even lie. In fact, when elite opinion is too much in sync, this itself can and should be a red flag. He goes on to talk about the COVID lab leak theory, some of the other things like the uh, the actual speech was, um, and it's sad that it was truncated, but he's a First Amendment believer. He believes in the American people's right to know and, and, uh, and move information around. Um, once again, somebody that I respect pretty heavily and I respect him simply because 
He's an honest operator. He does things that make sense. Now, um, let's transition to a not honest operator, Jerry Conley. I just want you to know the kind of the characters that you're out there. Again, we're going to attack the messenger. This is a... <laughs> This is the former congressman that I had uh, representing me in Virginia. I went to a gun control meeting that he hosted. It was called a town hall. It was for mothers demanding action, uh, no further information about what that action is. They're anti-gun group. And they were all a bunch of sort of foolish liberal women wearing the same t-shirt, congratulating themselves on their activism with no knowledge about firearms had no business making gun policy. And then Jerry Conley, who in this clip is wearing a scarf on top of his uh, suit for some reason. Nobody knows why. I'll let you listen to him for a second. From Virginia, Mr. Conley. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I don't know what to say uh, to that last one. Um, your fellow Americans. So he's wearing a scarf. We're elected officials. He has white hair and a stupid mustache. We're trying to get at the truth, and we're trying to participate in the process at getting at the truth. Mr. TV, uh, you have said that this isn't really a matter of right or left, that um, there are lots of different ideological colorations involved in the Twitter files. Is that roughly correct? Yes. And Mr. Schellenberg, you, you would agree with that? Yes. So. When you release information, have you released any information of, for example, right-wing elements or the Trump White House attempting to moderate content at Twitter? Yes. No, not the Trump White House, per se. Although I, di I did report initially in the first Twitter files that the Trump White House had made and, and uh, requests and had been honored. Mr. Shulver? Okay, so he just said that there was some right. The, the problem with this is that the right was not getting censorship or asking for censorship at near the rate that the left was. And so uh, Matt has mentioned that he went looking for it and it wasn't there. Um, this is not good enough for Jerry Conley, who can't pronounce names correctly. And so he goes on and hears that there's evidence, but the evidence is not significant. And now he's going to go on and talk about something in pop culture, which has nothing to do with anything. And once again, he can't pronounce a name. So he's talking about Christy Teigen. And uh, he's going to butcher that because uh, he's just like kind of a foolish old man that doesn't understand how things work in the Internet, on the Internet. Where is the Internet? <laughs> I could just imagine these people having these discussions. Uh, this other like woman, like I said, who's trying to like sort out who these journalists are. She refers to them as a threesome, which is quite funny. It made for a moment for me on Jesse Waters last night. And uh, you've just got this. They're not serious people. Once again, they're going to just try to impugn and they're going to attack the messengers as though they are some sort of partisan hacks when in fact they're Democrats, which they mention on later. I did not find that. You haven't Twitter found file. it. So we had a hearing the other day on Twitter and we had four witnesses, three for the majority, one for the minority, and all four testified under oath. They had never received a request for content moderation or takedown by the Biden White House but they did from Donald Trump's White House. Specifically- the, Those witnesses that they had were, were gone like uh, relatively recently. So they may not have been involved in that or they're liars, which is more likely because uh, the types of people that they were, um, there's no, you know, if you watch people like Yoel Roth, they were on the hook and there's also no consequences for lying to Congress unless you're in the wrong party. So. Anyway, I can only handle so much of Jerry Conley, but uh, I, I was going to show you the, uh, the, 
Hey, let's get a, a piece where actually Taibi is talking back to him because it's more interesting. After this video. And of course, we're going to get ads. So um, I'll, I'll push over here. We will uh, we'll move on to another little topic. There's only so much of this that I can take, but I watched hours and hours of this so you don't have to. And the takeaway is non-serious people asking non-serious questions. And then I can't even say that the Republicans were doing a great job. Um, some of them went in and, and went on soliloquies talking about COVID, misinformation, disinformation, censorship, and, you know, you have witnesses in front of you. Let, let's, let, me, let me lean into that just for a moment. The reason why these weaponization committee hearings are not serious to me is because you don't have people that know how to ask questions. You have these performances going on, but there are two types of witnesses that you should essentially be seeing. One of them would be known as a... Uh, either a victim witness or uh, simply a subject matter witness, in which case you ask them questions and you get to what it is that they know, you find out what their opinions, their biases and so on. You get information from them that you should know a little bit about and then you go and try to enrich yourself with it. And the other one is a subject interview. And the subject interview is what people would also know as an interrogation. It doesn't have to start off as, in, uh, as an interrogation, it can move to interrogation. But a subject interview is laying out the case for who this person is and why they may be guilty. Were they in the right place? Do they know the right things? Did they do certain things that may have been on the wrong side of whatever it is that you're investigating? And rather than treat people in this way, what we have instead is this sort of like silliness, this, this absolute silliness of theater and trying to confirm my own biases. Like none of them are interested in uncovering the truth and that's why they're not serious about it. So. It's unfortunate. I'm going to go to a piece on Daily Wire here. This is my pivot to FBI malfeasance, as as always. You know, we, we save a little bit of time every day for this sort of thing, and I want you to be aware of it. Um, this one is particularly troubling to me because I'm a 702 uh, abolitionist. I don't think that we should have FISA 702. And um, uh, apparently the Republicans who are working on it are also concerned about this. This says the FBI may have used FISA to spy on the congressman overseeing FISA. Uh, and the renewal is a top legislative priority for Biden. Well, I wonder why. Um, this, I'm gonna read a little bit of it and then I'm gonna give some commentary on it for a second here. So the FBI may have abused the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, also known as FISA, to spy on the very congressman tasked with overseeing FISA, according to revelations in the, in the hearing on Thursday. Uh, this just happened yesterday. Representative Darren LaHood, he's a Republican out of Illinois, member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence said uh, at a, a committee hearing that he has reason to believe that he himself is the unnamed congressman who a recently declassified report from the office of the director of national intelligence also known as odni admitted uh, that fbi's wrongfully conducted a search on the hood is leading the working group tasked with oversight and renewal of section 702 of fisa uh, reported by fox news and last month joe biden asked the Congress to reauthorize the FISA position, calling it a top legislative priority. Here's Darren LaHood saying, I wanna make it clear that the FBI's inappropriate querying of a duly elected member of Congress is egregious and a violation that not only degrades the trust in FISA, I think that's accurate, but is also viewed, uh, but is also viewed as a threat to the separation of powers. And he believes that he was in fact the person on there. This is uh, Luke Rosiak writing for Daily Wire. Um, 702 FISA is a really quirky animal. It is a section that involves very little 
uh, oversight within the bureau itself, the e the ease and the ability of accessing FISA. Basically, it has to check a certain number of boxes, and then you have to articulate that. It's only a couple of paragraphs to be able to get approval. And what you need to show is that there is an agent of a foreign power. This could be, um, you know, uh, a traditional intelligence officer or a spy of some kind. This could be someone that we call a co-optee. This would be someone working on behalf of an intelligence officer in this space. And it could be someone who has some sort of nebulous government connection to one of the threat countries or some other thing, but they cannot be in the United States. The FISA 702 section provisions, they require that the person not be in the US. And that's a big difference from the stronger FISA that people would be used to in the FBI. When you get the FISA warrants, they're known as full FISAs or 702 FISA. The 702 version of it is much weaker. It has to actually be deactivated and the collection must be discontinued if that uh, individual that you have nominated for 702 coverage makes it into the United States. So fill in the blank spy, fill in the blank country, comes to the United States, lands down at Dulles Airport or LAX or take your pick. When that happens, the minute that you're aware that the person is there, you have to turn off collection and you can't reactivate it until you're confirmed that that person has left the United States. So not collectible on US citizens or um, people who are actually in the US. They're all given a, a much higher degree of privacy. Here's the weird part. The main usage for 702 coverage in my experience was not just getting background information on who these, you know, um, FISA nominated coverage individuals were, but who they're talking to. That's the whole purpose. You, you intelligence, you always want to spin your network wider and get more information. And the things that are of most interest are looking for Americans that are in there who are talking to this, you know, foreign intelligence asset. The problem is, is that's expressly illegal under federal law under what's called reverse targeting. So when they're talking about FBI members querying the database, they can literally go in, look at 702 coverage, and 702 may cover any number of people that are, um, you know, that are that are assets in this way that are nominated, and you can search it, you know, by name and by email address and by other selectors as we call them phone numbers, social security, you know, this kind of thing. You can search through this big database of all the 702 coverage and look for anything you want. You know, you can look for certain Chinese characters. You can look for certain uh, words that are written in English. You can look for, you know, things like classified or top secret or whatever you want to do. And uh, if that material's in there, these are mostly emails. Uh, they might be text messages and things like that. Sometimes you get Skype messages and other weird stuff in there, some of the collection grabs. It's basically that anything that an American service must turn over on these, um, you know, of this, uh, this database, they, they turn over anything that touches American wires. So phone calls and things like that as well. Uh, but when you come to the actual 702 FISA, it's a little bit more limited than, than a full scope FISA that has all the, you know, possibly microphones and cameras and stuff. Um, in houses and all the other kind of tools that they can use. So it, if you searched for a congressman's name, that's reverse targeting. Like that's illegal in and of itself to be able to do that. And that's not to say that it doesn't happen because I'm fairly confident that's one of the few ways that you can actually use FISA if you're in that space. Just really troubling stuff, um, not the way that we should be uh, dealing with it, but we are dealing with an FBI that's not particularly honest. And um, I've got a one and a half minute clip here that I'm gonna show you. This is... Um, this is Elise Stefanik from New York uh, talking to Christopher Ray. This again also happened yesterday. This is a, a hearing that I skipped. Listening to Christopher Ray is like listening to an ex-girlfriend who is lying about you to other people. Um, here he is talking to Stefanik and um, not saying anything of value. Do you believe the Hunter Biden laptop story is disinformation? 
Well, I want to be careful about there is an ongoing investigation that is relevant to that. Uh, so I have to be careful of what I can share on that here. Do you believe the Hunter Biden laptop story is disinformation? I don't think there's anything I can share on that in open setting. Were you aware that the FBI personnel were in contact with Twitter regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story? I don't believe FBI personnel were in contact with, with Twitter about the Hunter laptop story specifically. I think there were people in contact with Twitter about Russian disinformation efforts. Of which the Hunter Biden laptop story was included according to the FBI. Well, I think I don't know exactly what you're looking at, but I'm He's just going to deny facts about what it is the FBI does and does not do with respect to social media companies. Were you aware that the FBI had Hunter Biden's laptop since December of 2019? I can't speak to exactly when we had a laptop available. There is a there is, as you as you know, there is an ongoing investigation run by the U.S. attorney out of Delaware from the prior administration that we continue to work very closely with. And, and we have Baltimore, an ongoing investigation as well. And our Baltimore field office is working very hard with that U.S. attorney, and I expect them to pursue that case uh, as far as it takes. This stonewalling, Director Ray, the American people deserve answers, and this is unacceptable. So he doesn't believe that, and that's really the issue there. He doesn't actually believe that the American people do believe uh, do deserve answers because he doesn't think he works for the American people. He mentioned that the other day that 50% of the American people think that they're the enemy and he doesn't work for them. He's interested in his recruiting numbers and uh, he believes that he works for state and local partners or some other nonsense. Go back to the Brett Bear thing. You can hear what he has to say. But, you know, this is not a man that, that cares about honesty. That's why he goes like this when they ask a question. He goes blink, 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 you know, 15 blinks. And then he just says something nonsensical like there's an ongoing investigation. Uh, we can't speak about that because of national security. We take these concerns very seriously. I don't really know the information that you're asking about right now. Like, what is your purpose? Why are you there testifying when you know nothing? And he he's deliberately not knowing things. He doesn't know things on purpose. And he also likes to obfuscate. He's just, he's not an honest operator. It's really frustrating to watch this kind of stuff. But uh, so be it. This is the guy that we have in the, the White House. And unfortunately, this is who uh, Trump sort of saddled the American people with. He uh, was one of those, probably one of the worst personnel decisions. I've had a couple conversations about it. I had one actually yesterday with Kimberly uh, Guilfoy on her Rumble show, and she would agree, I think, as well, that it was just one of those really, really awful Trump decisions. You know, they happened, and a lot of them were around personnel, and we're stuck with that one in particular. Uh, I'm going to pivot again to FBI malfeasance. This time is something that uh, that Julie Kelly, who writes for American Greatness and does a great job, she has a, a very active Twitter account. If you don't follow that, it's Julie underscore Kelly, the number two. And you can find her reporting on a lot of January 6th stuff. And in particular, she's been following this case with the Proud Boys, the so-called seditious conspiracy case. I went to CNN to try to pull this up because I wanted to see how they covered it. This is, again, just yet another example of attack the messenger, try to obfuscate what was actually going on. So what we said here is prosecutors, this is the, uh, the, the article here from CNN Politics, prosecutors mistakenly turn over potentially FBI classified material to Proud Boys on trial. Uh, the article here is written by Holmes Librand and Casey Gannon, um, CNN byline. Just a read over here. Boom. The, uh, the federal prosecutors accidentally turned over documents that may have included classified information. 
uh, to members of the far-right Proud Boys, apparently they're far-right now, who are on trial for seditious conspiracy, including more than a 1,000 internal messages between FBI agents. The judge basically gave the FBI more time to review these things and said that the defense can hold on to them. The issue came to light during the cross-examination of FBI agent Nicole Miller on Wednesday when uh, attorney Nicholas Smith, who's representing the Proud Boys, member Ethan Nordeen revealed messages between the FBI agents, including Miller, discussing the investigation uh, into the group and their actions related to January 6, 2021. Okay, that's the story that CNN's going to throw out there, right? And then we get down to the meat of this actual story. One of the messages revealed uh, in the court discussed communications between one of the Proud Boys who's now on trial and his attorney at the time, according to Smith. It's unclear how the FBI had access to communications and whether the communications are protected by attorney-client privilege. No, it's actually not. It's actually not <laughs> unclear. This is the, the reason why we go to other actual independent reporters. So Tracy Beans here um, noting that this is an insane thing and that the, the judge should actually be throwing this sort of thing out. The breaking information coming out of Julie Kelly's account. So there's Tracy Beans, um, as, as usual. This is how this stuff always gets double hit into my feed. The drama in the Proud Boys trial is that the FBI agent was lying on the stand, according to uh, to Julie Kelly's statements. And um, they, they mentioned very clearly that they had access to jail phone calls between the attorney and the client. Now, these should not even be available to an FBI agent. They should not be available in the jail calls when you go download them, but for whatever reason they have them. Um, I'm gonna read some of this stuff that came out of the transcripts of the, the trial reporting here. It says, today, government witness special agent Nicole Miller was cross-examined and she testified that she understood her legal duty under the Jinx Act to produce uh, to the United States attorney written statements related to the subject matter of her testimony. That's 18 USC 3500. Uh, Miller acknowledged among those statements were messages she sent in the FBI's link messaging system where bureau employees communicate with each other. Link is like a Skype or an instant messenger. It also has some um, some video capabilities. It has audio capabilities. It's usually, I think there's a link on the unclassified side. There's also one on the red side, which is known as the secret um, terminals. Uh, people who are familiar with the military will call it Simpernet. Um, and so that allows you to have discussions about classified materials in a way that's appropriate because it's over the the proper network um it's also the default setting for almost all things in the bureau so an incredible amount of unclassified conversations take place on the link server but um in this case she basically had 25 rows of excel messages that she supposedly had with her uh co-cases and that was supposed to be all the messages that were relevant to the case there's no qu question that that's probably bs they turned over a thousand. What she did was she hid files and only turned over, you know, she turned over basically um, something like a thousand or 1200 lines of documents of which a thousand of them were hidden, 25 were revealed. And when they uncovered it, they got all of the information, all 1000 lines that were in there. And um, the FBI basically said, we haven't searched those for classified material because it was on a classified network. It could have classified material, technically uh, possible, but generally not normal. Most people do not cut and paste classified information in. And if they do, it would be portion marked. It would be very easy to uh, run through that. You could probably do it in like five or 10 minutes. You just look through for the portion marking and anything that's not portion marked, it's actually already out of policy. It's actually already probably a, uh, a spill in that case because it's not marked as classified despite the fact that it is. And it'd be very difficult for the uh, Bureau to go through and decide that those things are the case. But anyway, the, the real issue here is that we're talking about a, a, um, an FBI agent, basically she was claiming that she didn't, um, 
you know, that she did some things that she gave all the information that she didn't necessarily give. There's some other information here about a uh, confidential human source. One of them that's really of note here, we'll pull this thing up. If you can't see it, it's small print, but it says the agent's request to Special Agent Miller, this is another FBI agent on the link system, was to go into a CHS informant report. Uh, there's a specific name for what the reports are called. Uh, that Miller had just put together and edit out that the agent was in fact present. Now, here's the thing. This is why it's such a problem. It's possible that that agent wasn't actually present, that it was an actual error in writing it. Um, but the other possibility is that the agent was there and that they're lying. And it seems to be evidence of that. So these are just without context. This is why you do your job up front. And uh, the idea that the FBI gets to decide which text messages are in and out of bounds, that there's no third party arbiter, there's nobody within the bureau that actually like oversees these things. They just, you pick your discovery and you send it over. I always had kind of a, a, a uncomfortable feeling about this. Uh, my buddy told me he got a spreadsheet that had all of his text messages and he was supposed to you know, click off which ones were related to his case. It seems like somebody else should probably be doing that too, you know, in case there's just something in there or, you know, double check the work, but that's not what happens. Um, discovery is kind of a, an afterthought in a lot of ways. It's not like the primary thought. And that's what happens when you have a group that basically is uh, interested in the outcomes. A lot of times they're just, the process of it is kind of a, it's more of a pain than it is sort of a, a moment of pride to be able to do the right thing. Um, I, I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of that too. When I've sent over discovery, it's not like my fun favorite thing to do. It's, it's kind of a pain to export it and we don't have good systems for it in the bureau. So, you know, you're, you're clicking on something and it's going to, you know, create an archive file of all these things. And then you just burn it off onto a CD. But even our CD burners were trash. Just not good technology. Um, the last thing I was going to do is just a kind of a quick cover up. This is the, one of the weirdest things. We talked about the story the other day of the four Americans that were down in Mexico, two of whom were kidnapped and two were killed. Um, this is not related to the messenger. This is just sort of current events. And it's just one of those weird little moments in the world. So I wanted to bring it up. The, uh, the Gulf Cartel who was apparently the group responsible for what happened to these Americans, issued a very bizarre apology for what happened. And uh, there was a letter, it was written in Spanish, it's translated, I'm gonna read a piece of it just because we're gonna continue to follow up. I'm really curious whether this was mistaken identity or these people were involved in something they shouldn't have been. Um, and this letter doesn't tell us one thing or the other, but it does say that the, uh, the quote, the Gulf Cartel Grupo Escorpiones strongly condemns the event, the events of Friday, March 3rd, which was a week ago, uh, in, in which, uh, unfortunately an innocent working mother died and four American citizens were kidnapped, two of which died for this reason, we have decided to hand over all of those involved and directly responsible for the events who were at all times acted under their own determination and in discipline and against the rules, which the seed CDG has always operated. I have no idea, but the, uh, that's your honor among thieves. They have a code and apparently these people violated it or they did what they were told and they're going to be sacrificed because uh, they don't want the American military to come stomping in and deal with them as a domestic terrorist or as a, uh, a foreign terrorist organization, an FTO. They don't want to be designated on that. Totally bizarre, weird times. Um, we'll have to keep watching that story. Like I said, I, I had two possibilities and uh, we'll see what they end up being. One of the one of which will probably be true. Uh, all that being said, I think that's all we can fit in for today. And uh, I do want to say, ladies and gentlemen, that you have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. And please consider subscribing. Hit the subscribe button on Rumble, on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and are listening to this show. If you enjoyed what you heard, 
You can share this content with a friend or two or 50. It's always appreciated. It does help us grow the audience. And uh, if you enjoyed what you had to hear, or <laughs> enjoyed what you what you did here, uh, we do appreciate the feedback. Give us a, a comment on there. We'll read through them. We, we read through all of them. And uh, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts would be appreciated. It continues to help these shows grow in the rankings. And uh, it uh, makes Phil's heart sing. He sends me text messages when we hit new mile markers. We're uh, somewhere in the... 265 uh, reviews range, which is pretty cool. There's plenty of people that have been doing this for a lot longer that do not have that kind of review. So we're really grateful for you taking the time to do so. You have been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.